Father, we have read and we have sung and we have prayed of these wonderful truths that we were born in sin, that we were bound to die in sin if left to our natural condition, that we pursued our sin with no concern about your word, about Christ, and about the consequences. And yet, in mercy, according to your eternal purposes in Christ Jesus, we who know you, you redeemed, you called from darkness to light, you called from ignorance to understanding, you called from blindness to sight, from error to truth, from death to life. And we thank you, and we do anticipate this time of your return, and we do want to live before you faithfully until then. By your spirit, the great gift of the new covenant, would you keep us faithful? Would you convict us of sin, as we sang when we go astray? Would you lead us back on paths of righteousness for your name's sake, as the psalmist prayed? And keep us persevering and faithful until that great day when we are with you in your kingdom and resurrected bodies. What a joyous and glorious day that will be. We ask now as we open your word in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we consider that the approach of your people to you, the both the ways that it's done wrongly and to lead us and to do it rightly, what is honoring and true to you. Would you teach us, shape and form in us godliness? And again, we ask you to do this by your spirit, and we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, open up your Bibles, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Actually, we're going to look at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. So we left off last week, uh, actually at verse 12. Um, we're going to pick it up at 4.13 and then go down to, well, this next section is going to go down to 5.9. I doubt that we'll get there this morning. Uh, but that is our next section. So Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 4. Now, I want to begin here with a, a bit more of an extended introduction, simply because of, to set the scene for what Solomon is going to lead us to in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. And namely, the issue of the fear of God and worship, and the right approach to God and worship. And how the fear of God is to be the, should be the foundation of how we, we come to Him, and it certainly is at the heart of all true worship that's uh, given to Him. But we see a lack of the fear of God in the church. This is not new in many ways. This isn't new even to our generation, though we experience in our generation, and we may see it in unique ways. But uh, clearly, if it's being addressed in the book of Ecclesiastes, it goes back even to worship in the Old Covenant and under the Mosaic Law. In other words, it's a part of the reflection of the sinfulness of man, the fallenness of man, to offer God worship that is not worthy of his name. And we do, however, living in our culture, see that, in the church of God, that the worship of God is too often something trivial, something that is less than what reflects the revelation of God in Scripture and in Christ. In 1998, some of you have heard of George Barna. He does a lot of um, polls and surveys of people. In 1998, he did one, and after an extensive survey, he concluded uh, this. This was part of his conclusion. To increasing millions of Americans, God exists for the pleasure of humankind. He resides in the heavenly realm solely for our utility and benefit. Although we are too clever to voice it, we live by the notion that true power is accessed, accessed not by looking upward, but by turning inward. 
In short, the spirituality of America is uh, American Christianity is uh, of America is Christian in name only. We desire experience more than knowledge. We prefer choices to absolutes. We embrace preferences rather than truths. We seek comfort rather than growth. Faith must come on our terms or we reject it. We have enthroned ourselves as the finer arbiters of righteousness, the ultimate rulers of our own experience and destiny. We are the Pharisees of the new millennium. Now, he wrote that back in 1998, before the advent of many of the things that have trivialized our worship since then. In more, a more recent book, 2009, still uh, dating back over 10 years ago, uh, there was another survey done. And it was a survey that interviewed uh, about 3,000 uh, American teenagers, and particularly in terms of their views of religion. Uh, and the authors found that most teenagers were incredibly articulate when it came to matters of culture or contemporary culture, music and movies and film and entertainment and so on and down there. But incredibly and amazingly inarticulate, inarticulate about what they actually believe and even those within the Christian church about what they actually believe, what is actually true about the gospel and what is actually true about Christ. Predictably and most significantly... This ignorance yielded a view of God and of the gospel that is a distortion of what is revealed to us on the pages of Scripture and in the New Testament. And also, predictably, God was much smaller and self was much more important. God in their thinking was far more concerned about us than we should be concerned about God and his work in Christ. Uh, they gave a label to uh, this sort of pervasive attitude and perspective uh, that they found in this survey. Some of you may have heard this. I remember reading about this long ago. Uh, it's called this. It's called moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism. That was uh, a, a label that they gave to the pervading attitude and thoughts about God uh, in this survey by teenagers in America. By saying it is moral, it means that there was a general sense or consciousness that we should be nice and kind because God is nice and kind. So we should be respectable and we should be generally a moral people because that's who God is. Certainly not holy, as God is holy, but basically nice people. It's therapeutic in this sense because the great concern in their mind of the individual and God's concern for them is that they have a sense of well-being, a sense of self-attainment or happiness, a sense of fulfillment in life. Very often, the great idea of the gospel is that it, God delivers me from bad feelings. He delivers me from bad uh, depression, from sadness, from a sense of inferiority, and so on and so forth. One, they described it this way in that survey. This is not a religion of repentance from sin, of keeping the Sabbath, of living as a servant of a sovereign divinity. Rather, what appears to be the actual dominant religion among U.S. teenagers is centrally about feeling good Happy, secure, at peace. It's about attaining subjective well-being, being able to resolve problems and getting along amiably with other people. So it's a very therapeutic kind of view of God. Deism uh, is, describes the, the attitude of a vague view of God and Christ and has little to do with a deep understanding of doctrine, of the nature of Christ, of the nature of sin, of creation, of repentance and atonement. And the coming and return of Christ into the kingdom and those type of things. 
they described this uh, in this way one did. Uh, in short, God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He is always on call. He takes care of any problems that arise. He professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves and does not become too personally involved in the process and certainly doesn't require too much from others in the process in terms of obedience, in terms of repentance from sin, in terms of trust and growth in the promises of God as they're revealed in Scripture. Those would be strange to the ears of many, even that fill the church, to speak that way. In essence, it is a religion that lacks any real sense of the fear of God and sincere worship. Any sense of a focus on God's revelation in Scripture and in Christ. And it makes the glory of God seem smaller and smaller and ourselves greater and greater. It's essentially a religion of self. God's great and passionate purpose in the universe is to make much of us. That's the idea. That's the heart of it. His great passion and purpose in the gospel is to reveal our great value in his sight. That's what underlies much of the preaching and the ministry under the name of Christ in our culture. And of course, it's not new to us, but it certainly is a part of what we see around us all the time and the things that it produces. Rather than us being amazed at grace, that a sovereign God who is absolutely holy, who absolutely condemns sin, who executes justice with perfect righteousness and omniscience and power and for his own glory, would rescue a sinner, one who is a rebel, we sang about it, a rebel to his will, who stands in defiance of his holy commandments and his holy nature, the fact that we would be amazed that he would save us and the result would be that we with wonder and gratitude would respond in worship, that again is a foreign idea to many in the church and yet it's exactly what scripture tells us and it's exactly, it's reality. It's not a version of Christianity, it is Christianity. It is what it means to follow Christ, to know the gospel. And so the, the church, rightly understanding these things, then we come amazed. We come amazed at who God is. We become lost in his majesty, we should. We become surprised that this God who is so holy would extend to us grace at such cost to himself as the death of his own son. And we gladly then offer ourselves to him and his service and worship because he is so incredibly worthy of it. So while coming into the context of the Old Covenant, Ecclesiastes is going to bring us face-to-face with these realities, the reality of true worship and what it means to come to God in a manner that is worthy of his name. And this is essentially the point of Solomon this morning and next week as well. As he's addressing this view of God, this, this religious attitude that can and does affect so many who name the name of God, who profess to bring true worship to him, but it lacks reverence, it lacks fear of God, and it has far too high a view of self. And in one sense, you can even say that's kind of an underlying theme in Ecclesiastes, even among Solomon himself. One of the themes we mentioned when we introduced the book is that it's Solomon 
examining life and looking for meaning and trying to do all of those things apart from revelation. His answers are, even in his case, were within the written word of God. Within all that God explained and established in the worship of the temple. And yet he put that aside to try to find something more. Something deeper. Something that he could find autonomously or independently or of his own strength, his own wisdom, and his own will. It was not a search in dependence upon God. It was a search in dependence upon his own resources. And that, that captures our culture and fallen humanity uh, always, right? That goes right back to the garden. I'm going to seek and grab for my own what God has withheld from me. And that will be better. Well, of course, Solomon found out it wasn't better. In fact, it was empty. It was vain. It left him with a sense of, when only looking at it through those eyes, of meaningless and misery and depression. Even to say, as he did earlier in chapter 3, it'd be better to never have even been born. And how blessed are those who have already died because they get out of this miserable race that the rest of us have to live in and to experience. And if we look at life without God, and we look at it honestly... Uh, and we look at it without any kind of real thought, not just superficially, then that's eventually where we would end up. And so that's kind of an underlying theme all the way throughout uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. And so the theme in that the title I've put for this section is that the fear of God is the beginning of meaning and wisdom. The fear of God then is the beginning of meaning and wisdom. We can't be begin to have meaning, we can't begin to have wisdom, spiritual wisdom, until there is an understanding of the fear of God, that we come in reverence to him. So there's two general categories we'll look at this. One is that meaning is not found in power, and that's wrapping up and just using it as a transition, what we ended with last week. And secondly, that the fear of God brings meaning and wisdom. The fear of God brings meaning and wisdom. Let me read our passage, and I'll read it all the way through, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 4, down to verse 9 of chapter 5, and then we'll begin to look at it together. Uh, beginning in verse 13, chapter 4. A poor, lad is, a poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king. He no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I've seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. And there is no end to all the people, to all who were before him, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God, and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing. They are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven, and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort, and the voice of a fool, fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. 
Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? There are many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. And so here then Solomon is going to bring us into the or face to face with what it means to fear God and find meaning. Let's go back to verse 13 of chapter 4 and note simply this that meaning is not found in power. Meaning is not found in power. Now, in one sense, he's concluding what we noted last week as the theme of chapter 4, namely that there is an oppression that exists, and oppression is essentially a result for the desire to accumulate or exercise power, to be above someone else, to have an advantage over another. And so, as Solomon is laying out the problem, he also lays out the solution along the way and says this kind of oppression, this kind of, this kind of sense of desiring power is confronted with contentment. It's confronted with a sense of community. In other words, that what we have is meant to serve rather than simply to obtain for ourselves. And in a sense, this follows in that same theme, but also provides a chance to transition to chapter 5. And here he's looking at power from the sense, uh, from the angle that when it's achieved, it doesn't produce what it promises. It remains empty like every other pursuit when it's done without the fear of God. So meaning is not found in power. There is a vanity of power as purpose. And that's the, the general connection between chapter 4 and chapter 5. What I said is, this, is that the idea here is that power tends to wield a common influence on those who possess it and that it brings a failure to satisfy or bring real change. He says in 13, verse 13, a poor lad wise lad is better than an old foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction for he's come out of prison to become king and though he was born though he was born poor in his kingdom and the big idea here is simply this that poverty with wisdom is better than honor and power with the foolishness that no longer knows how to receive instruction in other words to attain power but to lose wisdom to attain power but then to be a Infected with pride and a sense of self-importance that takes the greatness of the power achieved and it confines it to a very small world of self. And we see that very often. In this first scenario, Solomon points out that wisdom then has the advantage of changing one's position, of, being, of taking adverse condition, of being poor, of having little... And attaining much. Wisdom has the advantage of helping one to rise above their, their first condition or their first state. Now there's a lot of back and forth and it's not exactly clear sometimes of who's being referred to. So is the poor lad of verse 13 referring to the king before he became king? And then the second lad of verse 15, is that a second person? Or is that referring to the poor lad who was mentioned back in verse 13 and it goes... Uh, back and forth. And so there are legitimate ways that you, one could see that. But the overall point, in either way, is not effective. The overall point is essentially this, again, that this pursuit of power is empty if that is an end in itself. 
if it's an end in itself. There could be a change in leadership. This old foolish king eventually will be off the scene. And in verse 15, I've seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second last a lad who replaces him. In other words, he will be replaced. One time he had popularity. One time he had power. Eventually that king will go away and another will replace him. However, the old problems will come up again with the new leaders. And that's what he says in verse 16. There's no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him. This too is vanity and striving after wind. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, there's two ways that we can understand this, particularly in verse 16, that there's no end to all the people. It could be one way is that this king, this person attained uh, to power, and at first he saw popular support. All of the people flocked to him. All of the people came to him. But as he enjoyed power for a season, as he lived in that condition, he eventually fell into the same patterns and the same traps as the one who was before him, and he learned the fickleness of the people and the emptiness of power. That's one way, and it's a legitimate way. Another way to take it is there's no end to all the people, that he rises to power, and all of his dreams of what he thought it should be were not what he realized. And in fact, it's filled with pressure and busyness and responsibility that took away this, uh, some of the joy of it and the meaning of it. And so as he rose to power, he realized the pressures of ruling, and it still came also with the shifting attitudes of the people. In either way, however, again, he points to the fact that power in and of itself, as an end in itself, is vanity. It doesn't last, and it leaves no lasting memory of those who hold it. There's a lot of connections with this, but Joseph provides one illustration. Joseph became a servant in the house of Potiphar, eventually a prisoner in, under the, uh, because of Potiphar's wife, and then rising to be the second in command over all of Egypt, a position of great glory, a position of great honor, a position of great influence. And yet, how does the book of Exodus begin? In verse 8, chapter 1, And then a king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Joseph had his moment in the sun. He had his time of glory. Joseph left, and he was forgotten. And then there was oppression brought onto the people, God's covenant people, the people of Israel. And that's how it goes, and that's the point of Solomon. One summarized it in this. Uh, he has reached, speaking of this, this individual, he has reached a pinnacle of human glory only to be stranded there. It is yet another of our human anticlimaxes and ultimately empty achievement. And it can transition then into where Solomon will take us next because we could say at the heart of that as well is it was one who sought something apart from God, apart from the fear of God. So then Solomon will turn a corner into this next in the beginning of chapter 5 and show that this can happen, this kind of empty pursuit, even for those who don't necessarily live apart from any acknowledgement of God, but they live uh, without the proper attitude toward God. And, and he says religion can be just as empty as power. And so the fear of God brings meaning and wisdom. So let's look, and this is where we'll spend most of our time. In verse 1 of chapter 5. Guard your steps, therefore, or you guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. 
a warning then of our approach to God. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. What is the house of God? He's speaking here, of course, of the temple, of the temple of God, and particularly the temple of God that Solomon built. He built the first temple, as we know. It's a Solomonic temple. It was the most glorious temple. It was the most wondrous temple in terms of its size and in terms of its beauty and so forth. But the significance of the tabernacle and of the temple was what? That God's name dwelled there. That that was the unique place where God's presence resided among his people. That was at the very heart of the covenant. What people has a God so near as you? The great glory of the covenant was that God dwelled among his people in the place he established, first in the tabernacle, later among the people, uh, temple, and gave his people access to him. That was the great glory of it. So to come near to the temple, referred to as the house of God, was to emphasize the presence of God in the place of worship. Interestingly, that phrase, house of God, was used by Jacob. So this would be before Moses and uh, the building of the, the tabernacle and the temple. And he referred to the place where God met him in the dream in Genesis 28. Where God, there he saw the ladder to heaven and the angels ascending and descending and so forth. And he referred to that place as the house of God. Why? Because God was in that place. God was present there in a unique way. That's the idea of the house of God. But Solomon understood this better than anyone. The significance of coming to the place of worship under the old covenant there. He understood this better than anyone. The significance of coming to the place that God had established for his presence to dwell. You remember this, but in 1 Kings 8, uh, it sums up to us the, the, the ratification, essentially, of the work of Solomon when after the temple was constructed and everything was put into place, that God came and he made his presence known. And so he says this in verse 6. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. In verse 6 he said, Then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary, that would be then the Holy of Holies, to the most holy place, under the wings of the children, he refers to the sanctuary there as the house. And then later, he says this, and there was nothing there. There was the ark, the two tablets of stone, etc. And then it happened, he says in verse 10, that when the priest came from the holy place, so that would have been when they were walking out of the temple, so you had the front area, you had the holy place, then you had the most holy place. So they were coming out. From the, the most holy place into the holy place and then outside, outside of the, the temple proper, as it were, uh, outside those doors. And when they did that, when the priest left that place, it happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. You remember it was a cloud that represented the presence of God as he led them out of Egypt. It was the pillar of fire by night, the cloud by day. Here it is a cloud again, even as it happened in uh, the tabernacle as well, where God was showing that this is the place where my presence is. And where God's presence is, man cannot stand apart from invitation. Right? Even the high priest could only enter once a year. And that by blood, first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people. It was a holy place to say that God was there. Here Solomon is acknowledging that and says, when you come to the house of God, when you come to the place where God's presence uniquely is, don't come without taking consideration of the attitude 
in which you come. And the worshiper's attitude when coming to the temple was a reflection of their attitude toward God. And God is utterly and supremely concerned with the inner reality of our heart when we approach him. That's the idea here. God is utterly concerned with that. His gaze is upon our heart and the sincere fruit of our lives. You know, we know this verse, but it's so, how easily it can, the, the, the intent of it anyway, the import of it can be forgotten. When God chose through the prophet Samuel, David as king, what were the famous words? Why did he choose David? He was ruddy, he was young, he was kind of handsome, but he was a little guy. He was the squirt of the family, if you will. He was just the guy who was out, you know, told to care for the sheep. And yet God chose him and left all of the more impressive physically uh, brothers and older brothers. And God said, what? Man doesn't, God doesn't look at the outward appearance as man does. God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. Solomon well aware of this and this is the idea here is know that God is gazing at the heart and he comes essentially here the warning is this do not come to the place of worship flippantly that's the idea do not come to the place of worship flippantly do not come before God and offer him something that is not worthy of his name know that God is looking at your heart. Draw near to him, he says. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. You know, when we come into God's presence, we come to hear from him. We come to learn from him. We come to learn how to better worship him, to think of him, to follow him. Yes, in that, we receive much mercy. We receive grace. We receive comfort. We receive strength. We receive encouragement. But that comes not by turning our gaze inward, he says, but by turning it upward, as it were, to God. The supreme desire of our heart when we come before God to worship is that we come not merely with our own ideas and our own interests. We don't come seeking for God to bend to our desires and will, but rather to change ours to be conformed to his. It's similar to James 4, there in the context of prayer. Well, he's going to move to the context of prayer. But where he says you ask and you do not see, why? Because you ask that you might spend it on your own desires. And that is very often the attitude that people come and sometimes that we can come. So the essential sin that he's addressing here is that of a casual and irreverent attitude toward God. A failure to understand the infinite glory, greatness, and majesty of God. A failure to understand our smallness, our dependence, and our insignificance before him. So listen to how one captured this, and then we'll consider what it means then to offer a sacrifice of fools. One said this, Whereas the prophets hurl their invective against the vicious and the hypocrite, this writer's target is the well-meaning person who like a good sing, turns, who like a good sing and turns up cheerfully enough to church, but who listens with half an ear and never quite gets around to what he has volunteered to do for God. Speaking of the vow later. Such a man has forgotten where and who he is, and above all, who God is. And so Solomon kind of, again, as he often does, takes us by the collar and, and, and causes us to look at this face-to-face and at the possibility of a worship that God does not accept. As a matter of fact, look at God's opinion of it there in the middle of verse 5. He says, 
that when these come with this kind of attitude, the sacrifice that they bring, the sacrifice commanded by God, the sacrifice that was a part of their cultic worship, the sacrifice that was representative of their covenant and how they could approach God by grace. But here he says it is a sacrifice they bring, but it is a sacrifice of fools. In other words, it's a sacrifice that the foolish offer is the idea. And it's a sacrifice without the fear of God, again. It's the worship that is far removed from God in heart. Now, in some ways, we know this. We're speaking to the choir. I think many of us would argue this, and we would actually seek to address this in our lives. And yet, this kind of attitude can be more subtle than we think, actually. Uh, It can certainly creep up on those when we get very used to worship and worship becomes a duty, it becomes habit, it becomes something expected. We go because that's what we do. We're a Christian, we go to church on Sunday, and it loses something of the majesty, it loses something of the wonder of gathering with God's people where his presence is uniquely manifest when they are together. And there are subtle ways this can happen. Uh, Let me just suggest one. In the book of Malachi, you'll remember... Uh, he's writing to a people. Now, these are people who had already, in the history, at least of their nation, had already gone through the exile in Babylon. They'd already been back to the land. There was the second temple there, less than the glory of the first temple. And once again, falling into this same attitude that Solomon is warning against. Just listen to this. Just listen to God's uh, indictment of them. Uh, he says this, and this is the sins, uh, verse 6. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name? You say, how have we despised your name? That's God's answer. He says, you're presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you in that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised? But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would you receive, or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us with such an offering on your part? Will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. In other words, but keep everybody out of the temple, because all the things that you're giving to me, I don't accept. It actually is offensive to me. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name. And a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it. Later he says, how tiresome it is that you disdainfully sniff at it. And you bring what was taken by robbery, the lame or the sick, so you bring as an offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, a sacrifice, a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. So God is saying essentially... 
you're bringing the stuff, you're going through the motions, you're, you're bringing me animals, but you're bringing me what is convenient. And in doing so, you are not honoring my name. And let me tell you, Israel, he says, my name is to be feared and great among the nations. I am a great king. I am not like these kings of the nations. I am not like any king you have ever known. I am a great king over heaven and earth. I am a king that deserves honor above all. And you're bringing me your sick and your lame, which were specifically forbidden in the law, that no sacrifice that was lame, no sacrifice that was... uh, in any way uh, injured, no blind, or even a blind uh, a priest who had a physical de- uh, defect could not serve in the temple. And we go, well, clearly, but how often do we do this? How often do we come to God in this way? How often sometimes do we find it hard to get up in church, but we get up several hours easier during the week to go to a job? And yet we find it hard to give up, get up and do things for the Lord sometimes. Why? Because it's just church. It's just church. How often do we come with a heart that is distracted and actually captured and enamored with a thousand thoughts that have nothing to do with a battle to focus on the glory of the Lord? How often do we come here and we sit and we go through all of the motions and our heart never interacted with God, never confessed sin, was moved to praise or worship, was never thought of how we might do something for God and improve in our next week than we did last week. That's what he's talking about here. How often do we bring to Christ, who is the great king, the great redeemer of the universe, less than we bring to our friends, less than we bring to our jobs, less than we bring to our neighbors, and so forth. Less interest that we bring to some kind of entertainment or activity or event. It cuts a little deeper than we might think. He says, guard yourself. Remember, you're going near to God. God is there. We're offering the king of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, worship. And to bring a sacrifice that is less than what God deserves, that does not fear him, and to bring a sacrifice that is less than is worthy to his great name, to his holiness and majesty, is, in the language of verse 1, a sacrifice of fools. And what is a fool? Somebody who doesn't fear God. That's a fool. That's a spiritual fool. You can have a lot of worldly wise people who are utterly foolish because they do not fear God. This is the one who comes that does not fear God. And Solomon is essentially reminding us, consider how you approach him. Consider how we approach, approach God. This, of course, was evident even among the leadership of Israel when God came. He says, they, they honor me with their lips. And he's quoting here from Isaiah 29, uh, Matthew 15. They honor me with their lips. What's the other part of it? But their heart is far away from me. Their affection, their true interest, their true desires. And so it's possible to come and say a lot of fancy words, and yet our true desire is to be done with it to go off and do something else or to have some other interest rather than to be changed and transformed and to go out to increase in our worship and our service and so forth. So this is an indictment of worship then that gazes more on self, in one sense, than the glory of God. It gazes more on self. It's irreverent because it's self-preoccupied and not preoccupied with the glory of God. Now, capturing that idea, uh, there is one who said this, and I think captured this very well. 
I actually read this book a long time ago, but this, this has always stayed with me, this one particular part. Let me share it with you. He says this, speaking of corporate worship there, Arthur, he says, We worship our creator, God, precisely because he is worthy and delightfully so. What ought to make worship delightful to us is not, in the first instance, its novelty or its aesthetic beauty, but its object. In other words, it's not the music. It's not the various programs. It's not those aesthetic sort of external kind of things that appeal to different kinds of senses. What should define and drive the worship is its object. It is the beauty and the glory of God. And if that is not center, how can we say that we're actually coming to worship him? As a matter, he goes on, he says, it's not its novelty or its ascetic beauty, but its object. In other words, do we leave more impressed with who God is and his majesty and the wonder of grace? Or we do, do we leave more impressed with our experience and maybe even those who gave us that experience? Boy, weren't they great? Didn't they do this? Man, I really felt this. Where is God in the midst of that? And we learn to delight in him. God himself is delightfully wonderful, and we learn to delight in him. And amazingly, we can sometimes get more enamored with ourselves in the act of worship than God himself. And here's, here's the one that really stood, I remembered. Although there are things that can be done to enhance corporate worship, of course, there is a profound sense in which excellent worship cannot be attained by pursuing excellent worship. According to Jesus, you cannot find yourself until you lose yourself. In other words, if we want to know Christ, stop looking at ourselves and start looking to him. You can't, it's not about feeling better. That's a fruit of knowing Christ. It's not the objective of it. But he goes on to say this, and here it is. Despite the protestations, one sometimes wonders if we are beginning to worship worship rather than to worship God. As a brother put it to me, it's a bit like those who begin by admiring the sunset and then begin to admire themselves admiring the sunset. Isn't that great? I thought that's exactly right. What a perfect way to put it. We do that sometimes. We come with the, with the purpose to worship God and then we begin to admire ourselves worshiping God. Look at my worship I'm offering to God. Look at my experience that I'm having in what I give to God. Look at the experience this other person is giving me. And we start off admiring the sunset, and then we start admiring ourselves, admiring the sunset. How, pro how profoundly perceptive I must be to admire the sunset. However, God rightly beheld makes self fade in the background if we get lost in the worship of his glory. His greatness eclipses self-preoccupation. His greatness. We're never going to die to self until God becomes worthy, so much worthy there, than, more worthy than anything ourself could ever attain for ourselves, that we would gladly give it up. That we would gladly give it up for him. In the words of John the Baptist in John 3, he must increase, but I must decrease. Let me suggest this to you, not only suggest it, state it plainly. It is impossible to have high thoughts of God or preoccupation with oneself and to have a true knowledge of God at the same time. They cancel each other out. You can't have high thoughts of yourself, or I, or any of us. We can't have high thoughts of ourselves and a true knowledge and thoughts of God at the same time. I'm not talking about knowledge about God. I'm talking about a real knowledge of God. 
the real knowledge of God. They can't. It's impossible to have a true experience of God's presence and not have a sense of ourselves destroyed by his majesty and our affections made to rise up to him and to his glory. It's impossible. They cancel each other out. If we leave some kind of so-called worship experience and we become more enamored with our experience than God himself, then whatever you experience and however good a person might feel about themselves, you have not encountered the majestic and holy God of the universe who has revealed himself in Christ. You simply haven't. None of us have. That's what marks it is that we lose ourselves. We become destroyed of ourselves and enamored with who God is. That's a true experience of worship. And that just is something that's missed so often. Try to explain to Peter who when Jesus brought a, who did a miracle and brought fish up on the side of the boat. And what did Peter say? Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. He realized he was in the boat. or He didn't have a full understanding that he'd have later. But he certainly realized that in Christ, God was present in that boat in a way that made him feel very, very small. And his sin become very, very real to him. And that's what worship does. And that's what worship does. Tell John, who saw the risen Christ in the vision in Patmos in Revelation 1. Do you think John left talking about his experience? And considering how much he should be admired for this experience? John left devastated. He fell at his feet as a dead man. If Christ were to give us that vision right now, none of you would be sitting up, and I wouldn't be standing here for sure. We'd be on our faces before him because we'd have such a clear sight. Tell Isaiah when he went into the temple of the Lord and the train of the Lord filled the temple, and the Lord was high and exalted, and the seraphim were flying around him saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. You think Isaiah was thinking how wonderful this experience I'm having is. I can't wait to think of this experience. What did he do? You remember? Says, woe to me, right? I am cursed. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I have seen the glory of the Lord. He was struck with his sin and the glory of the Lord. But that didn't leave him in a place of detachment it left him to a place of service right it doesn't mean that god leaves us there when we see the glory of god it doesn't mean we're just left in this place of i'm so small so i can't do anything it actually brings us to a place where i want to do everything for the lord i want to be faithful to him and to serve him and to live for him in a way that i never could be and i'm motivated by his glory and so that's what true worship is that's what true worship produces and god demands this right worship god doesn't suggest it god god doesn't coo us in to try to appeal to our sensibilities so he doesn't hurt our feelings he demands worship he demands it from the church and from his people as we read in malachi who are you i'm a great king who are you to bring me this this futile gifts as if i'm impressed Shut the gates. I wish that somebody would have enough sense to just shut the whole thing down and say, don't waste your time. God demands that kind of worship. He demands it. He's so gracious in how he leads us there and, and teaches us, of course. But he demands that. So worship, what is worship? What is worship? Uh, let me define worship, I think, is the simplest definition, uh, is this. Worship is the response of the heart to God. That's what it is. It's 
that simple. Worship is the response of the heart to God. That means we see God who as he is, and our heart responds to God as he is, and that's worship. Now, that response involves all kinds of things like our affections, our obedience, our trust, and all of that is a part of the response. But it is a response to God as he is. And who is God? Well, he is infinite in his being. He's holy. We are weak and small and dependent and wicked creatures. He is the gracious God who has extended to us mercy. When you say God demands that, that seems a little kind of doesn't really stoke up my loving feelings you know that just you know god makes him sound so big but but listen that's where our joy lies is when we come to god with the right heart when we understand who god is you think isaiah would have changed his experience for anything or moses or john or any of them you think they would have changed that experience no because what they saw of the lord filled them with so much more joy and so much more glory and so much more meaning and purpose that they would not have given that up for anything. But God has to keep accentuating this. And I'm going to kind of leave it. We're going to pick it up here. We will finish next week. This is a little bit more of a longer lesson. Yes, to say, how important is this to God? How important is it that we guard our steps when we come into the house of God and that we realize that we draw near, we come to listen, and to draw near to him to listen, uh, he said. Well, here it is. There are two high points, two particular high points, where God accentuated this. And, uh, it was at the establishment of the worship of the tabernacle. So this would have been worship under the Mosaic Covenant. This would have been God taking Israel from Egypt, bringing them to Sinai, giving them the Mosaic Covenant, establishing them as a nation, his firstborn son, and saying, this is how you will glorify me among the nations. This is how you will relate to me. This is, this is how the covenant operates, my covenant in which I have redeemed you and brought you near to myself. And so you have all this wonderful stuff. You have all of this wonderful stuff. And you have the presence of the Lord again in Leviticus 9. And uh, Moses and Aaron, or verse 23, went to the tent of meeting. They came out and they blessed the people. The glory of the Lord appeared to all of the people, some kind of physical manifestation. Fire came out from before the Lord, consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. Essentially, God confirming and saying, this is my covenant. This is how you will operate to me. This is how the sacrifice worships. I'm going to consume the sacrifice, essentially, and not you. That's the idea. The sacrifice is going to be a substitute for you. Here's a dramatic way to impress that upon your mind. And the Lord consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces, which is the only natural and right response. And then it says this in verse 10. Nadab and Abihu, who were two of the sons of Aaron, who were charged with acting as priest. It says, the sons of Aaron, they took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, they placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. What that strange fire was, we can't be exactly sure. Maybe they didn't have the right elements. Some say that they were drunk, whatever. The point is, is that they didn't do it as God required. That's the point. And what happened? Well, we just read how fire came out and consumed the sacrifice. And here in Leviticus 10, it says fire came out and consumed them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord. Remember, the presence of the Lord is the issue. He is holy. 
is holy. The presence of fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be honored. I'm telling you, would that not be offensive to much of the church? I can't worship a God like that. I can't worship God then. God is holy. And if we see his holiness, then those of us who have seen his glory go, yeah, that's right. That's right. Forgive me for not doing that. Right? He says, by those who come near to me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. And so what did Aaron do? He kept silent. He shut his mouth. He shut his mouth. Why? Who is the center stage here? Is God is the center stage. God is the one who is on display He is the one who is on the throne. He is the one to be the object of their worship. And you go, but that's his sons, right? I mean, come on, these are his sons. How hard would it be to lose your sons right before your eyes? And God is the one who killed them. And right in the midst of them doing what I thought was supposed to be done. You think, okay, uh, Aaron, I'm going to give you a little bit of time to kind of get yourself together. You just lost your sons. I'm going to give you a little bit of time, step off to the side, take a minute to yourself, do what you need to do. Does God say that? He didn't say that at all. He said, come forward, carry your relatives away. He called some other family members. Come carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. And so they took them and he says, look, their very bodies are a pollution to my covenant and to my people. Get them out. Get them outside of the camp quickly. They're defiling it. And then he says, Moses said to Aaron and to his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes. In other words, don't you dare show grief before the people. Don't you dare act like you're upset or something bad has just happened. Why? Because that would dishonor my name. Pretty powerful. Do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes so that you will not die and that he will not become wrathful against the congregation. But your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, shall bewail the burning which the Lord has brought about. You shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of meeting or you will die. For the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. And so they did according to the word of Moses. That's God accentuating and saying, look, I'm establishing worship, and I'm going to show you right up front, I'm not messing around, I'm holy. You will worship me rightly. You go, wow, man, that was a mean Old Testament God. I'm glad that we have the New Testament God in Jesus, right? So we don't have to live under that anymore. Now it's all grace, 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 grace. Come as you are. God doesn't really require you to change that much. He just loves you exactly as you are, and he'll just leave you just like that and keep loving you. Isn't he so gracious? Well, God did the same thing in Acts chapter 5. A man named Ananias and Sapphira, the new covenant had preaching had started. The spirit had come. The gospel was preached. 3,000 souls were saved. They were living as one giant community. The gospel continued to be preached. People continued to get saved. There continued to be some resistance to it, but it kept going out, and the power of the Holy Spirit was manifest 
and everything was just wonderful and delightful and so good and and part of this loving spirit people were saying hey let's uh we're going to sell what we have and give it now god didn't require that he didn't say hey go sell everything you have to the, the these people uh they did it because they wanted to they did it because voluntarily they wanted to serve their brethren who had been saved with them you have a wonderful example of the sharing among believers and of barnabas who had, was an example in all of that who owned a track of land, sold it, and he laid the money at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? In other words, you didn't have to do any of this. You didn't have to do this. You did this because you wanted to hypocritically be pious in front of others, while in fact your heart was not right before the Lord. In a sense, you brought a lame sacrifice. And so what happened? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? Because, Ananias, that's where God is looking. You have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. Why? Because God's presence is among his people. And in trying to deceive his people, you are lying to God because the Spirit dwells in them and among them. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all of those who heard of it. The young men got up, they covered him up, they carried him out, and they buried him. And now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter responded to her, tell me whether you have sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yeah, yeah, that was the price. Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out, and they buried her beside her husband. And what was the result of that? Exactly what God intended to be the result of it is what the result was. What was the result? Verse 11. Great fear came over the whole church and over all those who heard these things. And yet, did that destroy the gospel witness? In verse 14, all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes and men and women were constantly being added to their number. That's the new covenant, folks. That's Christ from heaven exercising his will through the spirit among his church to say, look, right at the beginning, I want to establish something. Yes, Forgiveness, grace, mercy, compassion, kindness, all of that stuff. But I will be treated as holy. I am the Lord's. You've heard it sometimes, this is a very earthly way to say it, but in some ways it kind of captures the idea. You heard it say sometimes, uh, somebody who's stronger who tolerates somebody weaker, and you say this, don't take my patience as weakness. Right? You ever heard that? Don't take my patience or kindness as weakness. In other words, don't take advantage because this patience can end. Well, there is a sense. That's kind of an earthly way to put it. But there is a sense in which God says, and this is a theme, don't take my grace as a lack of holiness. Don't 
take my mercy as a means that I do not care about sin. Because I do. And so when you come, you come with a right heart. When we come to the Lord's table, we don't come, not this morning, we'll do it next week, we don't come holding on to something and think that God is impressed with that. We don't come thinking that God's just happy that we showed up. Wow, how wonderful that is. They came to my party. That's not true. Mm -mm. We come to worship him who created heaven and earth. Him who is infinite in majesty and glory. Him who became flesh to go to the cross, to bear a darkness of sin that we can't even fathom. And he did that so that we could be redeemed and we could be forgiven. And that in doing that and in faith in him, God would find those who worship him in spirit and truth because he, in fact, would be the one who produces that and gives it. And so Solomon says, when you come into the house of God, guard your steps, look at your heart, consider how you are approaching him. You're coming before the Lord. Come to listen, to draw near to listen, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not even know that they are doing evil. And so that's the encouragement to us. First of all, the encouragement is, is, do we even know the word? Does that concern us? And secondly, for us to do, to remember to come, we come to a high and holy privilege to worship the word. And we need to prepare our hearts for Sunday morning. We need to pray. We need to make sure we get rest. We need to come ready to listen to the word. We need to confess our sin. We need to be ready to serve and to take what we learn and obey it when we leave and just enter the battle again in the world and with our flesh and with the devil. That's the right heart, and that's the heart that God expects. And we'll actually look at that a little bit more uh, next week as we finish this passage. Let me go ahead and pray, and then John will have us wrap up. Father, you are holy, holy, holy. You are majestic in glory and power. You became like us, and you made us in your image, and you became like us, our Lord Jesus Christ, in the flesh in some mysterious way that you designed humanity, that that could happen, and that you could redeem us. And yet, you are not us. You are holy. You exist in a plane, a reality of existence that we don't even understand. Infinite in your nature, your power, your presence, your wisdom, your knowledge, your very being and existence. And you are the one who has redeemed us. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give us and renew in us a fear of you, a reverence for you. Even as Peter prayed to the, or wrote to the church and said, if we address you as Father, conduct ourselves in fear during our time and stay here on earth. That we were not redeemed with silver or gold, those kind of things, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, where he was foreknown before even the foundation of the world. And it is through the blood of Christ that we come. Help us if there's any element of being trivial in our heart towards the worship of you. Would you please teach us? We ask you for forgiveness. We're all guilty of that at some level. Forgive us and teach us what it means to be true worshipers of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you hear our prayers and that when we confess, you forgive us.
for you are faithful and righteous to do so and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness through Christ. And it's in his most dear and precious name we glorify in, we honor, and we praise.